I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey everybody, welcome once again to another edition of I-94. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. And today we are joined through the miracle of Zoom by the author Margot Mifflin. She has a new book out called Looking for Miss America, a pageant's 100-year quest to define womanhood. It's out on Counterpoint. It is a nonfiction book that details the history of the Miss America pageant. Margot, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Is this our first ever night show? It is our first ever night show, yeah. I think, except for ones that we did live. Okay. Oh, oh right, yeah. right, right, right. Over Hello. at the bookstore, yeah. Oh, it's been so a while. Is, yeah, but this is, it's, a nice, it's a nice change of pace. Usually we do this early in the morning and we've had our coffee. Now we're bedraggled and broken by the day as we talk to you know important authors broken about their books. Um, Mark, I want to start off real quickly. Um, I, I think it's obvious what the book is about from the title, but how did you get interested in the Miss America pageant in the first place? And what did you, I guess, what did you find the pageant said about womanhood that made you kind of want to pursue this project and blow it out into a, a real nonfiction book? I got interested when I stumbled on it on TV probably six years ago and thought, as John Oliver later thought, how is this still a thing? <laughs> I, <laughs> I was uh, a, a, amazed to see women on stage in swimsuits uh, it, you know, at, at such a recent point in history. And I wanted to understand it. I had a lot of preconceptions about it, some of which were, um, you know, blown away once I did my research. And what was really pleasant about researching this was that it, it, it touched so many aspects of our culture, that it, it was significant in so many ways in terms of understanding women's history over the past century, spanning class, race, fashion, pop culture. Um, <clears throat> it was launched the year after women won the vote, or I should specify the year after white women won the vote because uh, women of color didn't entirely enjoy that privilege at the time. Uh, but I, uh, I wasn't the first to observe that it was launched on some level in reaction to that. You know, there were women in 1920 uh, had, had, and before had been out protesting for women's equality as a collective group. And then the year after they won the vote, women were competing in the Miss America pageant in swimsuits, individuals representing individual states, um, something typically not a collective action. And so there was an interesting kind of a, um, a, a gender aspect, obviously there. There was a fashion aspect. The swimsuit uh, operated on two levels. It was both progressive in the sense that women were, uh, had, had been uh, entering sports or playing sports and had become much more physically active and specifically were swimming. And so the sort of reduced form-fitting swimsuit was launched in, in response to that. But the pageant was really canny about both seizing on that as a progressive symbol to, you know, encourage women to compete with each other wearing swimsuits, but also reducing them to their bodies. Um, so fashion, class, it was sort of like a middle class, ultimately, as it evolved 
because it was originally just a swimsuit competition. But in the 30s, a uh, director, Lenora Slaughter, came along, an ex executive director, who tried to upclass it. And so a lot of what she did, adding talent and, and other sort of qualifying factors, uh, transformed it into a kind of a middle-class debutante ball. You also mentioned, though, and I think this is an important point that I, I frankly hadn't really thought about until I read your book. You mentioned at the very start, you know, that when women won the right to vote in this nation, um, it was white women almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. And this competition had more than a whiff of eugenics about it as well. Um, there was a certain uh, feeling that the Miss America pageant could introduce an ideal of womanhood. And that certainly, according to your book at least, was, was carried really later through some of their glory years as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a, a kind of chilling uh, undertone <laughs> that I, I never really you know associated with. Um, candidly, I think something that maybe people of my generation think of as a little campy and, and outdated. And it, it took on a far more uh, sinister overtone as a result of that. Yes, it definitely segued with uh, eugenics in the sense that the women in the 20s and the 30s had to recite, actually, and into the 40s, because uh, one of the major Miss Americas, Bess Meyerson, had to do this and lied <laughs> in order to become the first Jewish Miss America and the only Jewish Miss America. Um, but the, uh, the requirement that you recite your pedigree uh, was right. built in early on. So people had to say, you know, my family is, has been in this country three or four or five or 10 generations back. Um, and that in itself was a response to immigration because there had been these waves of immigration that threatened some people's idea of what it meant to be an American. And so Miss America codified that by rewarding people who conform to specific ideas. Well, there was, there was an explicit rule in, in the pageantry rules, wasn't there, that the Miss America must be white in the, what, until the 50s? Yes, exactly. So this uh, notorious rule said, um, you must be in good health and of the white race. And that lasted, it wasn't really formal, it was in, informally in place, and then it was formalized after Lenora Slaughter took over. Um, and then there were some uh, Asian and Latina state winners, never a Miss America, uh, but no, there, uh, no black women competed until the late 60s. And of course, the first black Miss America was probably the best known Miss America and the best loved Miss America, Vanessa Williams. So the eugenics dovetailed with straight up racism for a, a way longer than you would think would, would, would be allowable in this institution. And I, I, I want to go back a little bit because you know, when I was reading about women's place in society when these pageants were starting, you, you had a, a line that bare knees were illegal. Yeah, yeah, the guys with the measuring tapes on the beaches. Yeah, yeah. they would send yeah. cops That's around. And then, oh, sorry, go ahead. and then you went into um, talking about, you know, during this 
discussion of eugenics that actually having women at the at the Kansas State Fair where they were evaluated. Let's see. Oh I, yeah, it was like a 4-H. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, almost like they were livestock. Health, yeah, yeah, heredity, yeah. And all in the name of better breeding yeah. and building larger families as urban urbanization shrank. And I mean, this stuff to me just like blew my mind because this was not that long ago. No. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, it's it's amazing to um, consider how long that endured. And a lot of the standards of Miss America were presented as beauty standards. For example, Lenora Slaughter defended the fact that there were no black Miss Americas or there were so few entrants um, by saying, we simply don't know how to judge black women, or black women's beauty, which of course, uh, translates to we can't see black women's beauty. But going back to the, the swimsuit and the exposed skin, early it, Miss America was really pushing it in, the, in its early years because it was a transitional time for women's fashion when they could reveal their bare legs on the beach, but only so much. So there were, and it wasn't standardized throughout the country, there were um, different rules in different places and uh, for example, in Washington, D.C., there's a photo in the book of, uh, 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 I, I don't know if he was a police officer or just a, mo a beach monitor. Beach ranger. Measuring the distance between a woman's knee and the bottom of her swimsuit. That was regulated. Yeah. <laughs> so that, it's I, have a, I have a really hard time gauging where this competition is in in the mainstream in in american culture your book helped with that a little because i never watched it my sister never watched it i think you know, Alyssa people never watched, watched it back in the day well so so margo writes in the first year it was televised they were kind of nervous because they thought the the uh television rights were going to eat into the um into the the actual attendance of the pageant and it ended up being like 30 percent of all tv viewers tuned in to to Miss America, did you um, did did it stay that strong for a long time? How how influential was it? Because like like Jamie said, it it to to me who never grew up watching it or knew many people who watched it, it doesn't it almost seemed I almost almost surprised on how much um, activist action it merited. Well, TV was the best thing that ever happened to it because uh, in it was in the mid. 50s that it started to be broadcast. They they had a little bit of a glitch where they used to uh, show they would uh, televise the winner, learning that she won backstage and oh, the live right, audience yeah. didn't see that. And then they realized their live audience was getting ticked off about that, and so it became you know a a, a staged event in front of them. But it really uh, it it really increased their viewership. It made it a national institution. The viewership grew and grew until the 70s. I think the peak was maybe 70 or 71. And then second wave feminism came in and sort of started to put the kibosh on it. And there were also protests in the late 60s. Uh, notoriously, uh, the 1968 feminist protest on the boardwalk outside Miss America, um, where there, it was a full, you know, full day protest and then someone inside unfurled a banner uh, which said women's liberation, which is one of the really interesting things about Miss America's history. It inspired this event, the protest, 
that launched that phrase into our national vernacular. It wasn't a, it wasn't a common phrase at that point. We're speaking with the author Margot Mifflin. Her new book is called Looking for Miss America, a pageant's 100-year quest to define womanhood. Right now, we're actually going to hear uh, a little excerpt from Margot's book. As always, we do want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, and we want to thank Rob Mazurik and the Exploding Star Orchestra. That's courtesy of International Anthem Recordings. We'll be right back after this short interlude. Beautiful Faye Lanphier was seated in the lunchroom of Paramount Pictures, talking about the five years since she'd been crowned Miss America 1925. She had not become a star. She had married and divorced a millionaire. She had opened and closed a beauty parlor. Now 24, she was working as a stenographer in the very studio that had signed her after the pageant. And she had something extraordinary to say. She was happy. Those days when I was Miss America... They were nice in one way, but I was never happy. Something was always bothering me, causing me to worry, she told the reporter profiling her for the new movie magazine, a popular gossip monthly. In fact, it was everything. Her looks, her weight, her talent, her right to be in the spotlight, her fear of letting people down, and her very worth as a public figure. The studio hadn't wanted her for the American Venus. They had wanted Miss America. I wonder if you know what it means to be wanted not for yourself, she asked. How it feels to know that people are interested in you not because you are you, but because you are something. It was a misgiving any celebrity might share, but she sharpened the point and aimed it at the very heart of the pageant. Perhaps if that something is a real accomplishment on your part, you can take pride in it and feel all right. But I couldn't. Crowned for her non-achievement, Lanfear felt unworthy of the attention. I did not build myself, she explained. I just happened to be like I am, or was. She had since quit wearing makeup and had gained almost 30 pounds. I suppose that a person dying of thirst would overdrink when he first got a tank full of water, she noted without remorse. You'll never catch me getting the same ailments some of the girls who win beauty contests work themselves into. 15 pounds overweight is better than 10 pounds underweight, so that is that. Lanfear's frank allusion to pageant-inspired eating disorders was unusual in the early 20th century. The problem became obvious in the fitness-crazed 1980s and 90s when Miss Americas proudly described their starvation diets and kamikaze exercise regimens as if they were commendable, not crazy. Later, one honest ex, Kate Schindel, affirmed that the pageant preparation had left her with both an eating disorder and a massively unhealthy exercise compulsion. Fitness had defined the first wave of Miss Americas, who had competed in a period when a corset was in decline and disciplining the body through dieting was on the rise. The Victorian paradigm of fleshy beauty had shifted as women became more physically active and fashion became less restrictive. In 1918, the first popular weight loss book, Diet and Health with Key to the Calories, was published by Lulu Hunt Peters, a formerly fat doctor who offered a scientific method for slimming down, counting calories. She assured aspiring dieters that fat individuals have always been considered a joke, but you are a joke no longer, and entreated women to ignore husbands who claimed they preferred Zaftig women. The book was a bestseller from 1923 to 1927. Like so many former beauty queens who gained weight, Lamphere was fat-shamed. She'd heard the whispers behind her back at work, but she didn't care, because with the pounds came relief from the pressure. The prize, the reporter concluded, was not worth the game. He added that she was still very pretty, 
and a great part of that attractiveness was her perfect ease of manner, which set her apart from the fluttering self-conscious women, even a few stars he had spotted lunching on the Paramount lot that day. The oldest of six children whose father died before the last was born, Lanfear entered her first beauty contest in Oakland, California in an effort to improve her life as a secretary. She placed second, which didn't qualify her to compete statewide for Atlantic City, so she raced to San Francisco the next day to try there. But as she stood in the wings waiting to walk out and be judged, she was paralyzed with fear and plagued with self-doubt. She couldn't budge. The pageant host gave her a shove and told her to smile and keep moving. Don't stand still out there. Smile, do you hear? She smiled and she won, qualifying for Miss America, which she lost in 1924, and to which she returned thinner to win in 1925. All that was fun. But then came the fashion shows and sponsorships and 16-week stint demonstrating Underwood typewriters as Miss America, and the inkling that she wasn't really the most beautiful girl in the United States, which was true, no one was. Soon after her new movie magazine interview, she married her childhood sweetheart, had two kids, and rarely made news again, except in articles about failed pageant winners. Already, the media had launched a lasting practice of shooting down beauty queens, Miss Americas among them. Swimsuit pageants had sprung up all over the country, from copycat regional contests to Miss NRA. A 1924 article titled, Cursed by their fatal gift of beauty, ran down the tragic misfortunes high-profile winners had suffered. A 1931 piece announced, Tragedy or obscurity comes to beauty queens. Disaster follows scores of winners. None has made good as actress. Miss America winners were dismissed directly in a 1934 article that asked, What has befallen the six beauties who won the title Miss America? It took three columns to explain. Not much. Except, perhaps, Nora Smallwood, whose marriage to an oil millionaire ended with a fantastically sordid public divorce in which she lost custody of her daughter. Smallwood's husband alleged that she'd allowed their toddler to drink whiskey, had entertained men while he was away, earning her the meaty moniker Mistress America, and had taken a lover who not only slept in the couple's bed and hung his clothes in their closet, but also, the ultimate indignity, wore the oil man's pajamas. It was this sort of press that had caused the pageant to disband in 1928. And you just heard an excerpt from Marga Mifflin's new book, Looking for Miss America, A Pageant's 100-Year Quest to Define Womanhood. It's out now on CounterPoint. I'm assuming it is available at all good libraries and probably some good bookstores as well. Margot, before we heard that little excerpt, we were kind of talking about the impact Miss America had on American culture. One of the things that struck me over and over again in this book, seeing how people pushed against the values of the Miss America pageant, seeing how people reacted to it. It struck me that, strangely, the pageant wanted to be something that it really couldn't be, especially in its later years. It struck me that the pageant wanted to be... um, in an ideal world, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see because this is radio, um, it wanted to be a way to present American womanhood, largely in the hopes that these women would then get a husband. And I think the organizers of the pageant thought that that was the biggest thing. Later on, they had a very well-publicized university scholarship that went with it that transformed it slightly into, well, we're producing very well-educated women and we're giving these women a chance to go on. Later still, as we get into the time period of Miss America, Miss America 2.0 comes along, and as you describe it, it's it's almost like a big TED Talk. 
Um, what mm-hmm. was it about the pageant itself that made it so pliable? Because I can see it both being something that people would take great offense to, as people did. I can also see it as something that people had very warm memories of, which, of course, you talk about extensively in your book. Yes. And as for the the warm memories, that's an important thing to consider because it uh, provided people with a community. A lot of social connection was forged through the Miss America pageant. Um, The... uh, Again, Lenora Slaughter is the hinge person here. She's the one who added the talent and the scholarships. Uh, Bess Meyerson in 1945 was the first to get a scholarship. I have to add a little piece of local history here. Cloris Leachman in 1946 um, got the scholarship, uh, Miss Chicago, got the scholarship and I guess Slaughter determined or the board determined that it didn't have to be applied to college. It could be applied to training. So Cloris Leachman used it for um, professional training. But Slaughter saw that, I mean, she was a conflicted character in some way because she both reformed this skin show to make it, to, to keep it going, but she wanted to give the women who competed something more than like a fur coat or a car. So she instituted the scholarships. The scholarships have truly benefited people throughout the years. Um, she also added the talent, which made it have a, a greater entertainment value. And uh, I'm sorry, I forgot what your original question was. I was, I was going with the... Uh, yeah. Well, no, I mean, the, the thing is that the, the pageant itself seems to be so many things to so many different people. It seems to be something that people have had very forceful opposition to. It also, again, seems to be something that people have very warm memories about. And the pageant also seems to have shifted yeah. over time to become something that I think the pageant organizers hope represents an ideal. Now, whether we all agree that that's an ideal or not is a different question entirely. But it does seem Mm -hmm. like that that has been a main part of its existence since it even started out in these seedy Atlantic boardwalks. It did seem like there was a kind of back and forth in which whether the culture or the pageant set the tone for for how people behaved in life is, I think, kind of what you're saying. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's those shifts are both its strength and its weakness. The, they're its strengths in the sense that the organizers have really tried to change with the times, but it's often too late. The changes are made. I'd say in the book that it's it's always been in dialogue with feminism, but never in step with it. And the uh, the so that that's the weakness. But the strength is that they're trying. If they had just stayed as a, um, a a bathing beauty contest, as it was originally called, it would have had a sort of pure purpose the way Miss USA does. Miss USA doesn't really pretend to be something else other than rewarding beauty. And there is some, you know, there's community service, but what you're gauged on is, and what your goal is, is, is different from what Miss America affords. But the problem is that as it has added on these layers of reward and significance, it's it's complicated and it fragments its fans. For example, um, a couple of years ago, they removed the swimsuit, which was huge. I mean, in its entire history, that was the biggest change. And the in some ways, to some people, 
that completely de defeated the purpose of the whole thing. The defense of the swimsuit for contemporary women who want it to remain was that it showed fitness, that the women needed to be fit. Of course, you know, you could wear yoga gear to show that. You don't have to wear a swimsuit, but, but fans are divided as of since that change uh, because some love it and some think it was the right thing to do. I think the history of this, the the pageant, like all American history, is complicated. And, and you talk about in the book about class and how a lot of these women needed to participate in these pageants to go to college. And to me, it, it, it reminded me of, you know, soldiers that go in the military. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a very funny analogy, but to get money for school and, you know, often go off to war and get protested and then you know, these women have to participate in this beauty contest mm -hmm. and also get protested, but it's often like wealthy, middle-class women that are doing the protesting. And I think you touched upon it, but it, I, I think it's a very nuanced, complicated discussion because, you know, we could say, sure, college should be free for everyone, but different people have to go to different lengths to get an education. And I, I like how you talked about that because you could easily just make this into a demonization, yeah, but, it, but it's yeah. very complicated. Yeah, and I kind of like to actually to point out, like, in the early days of the pageant, I mean, I think that there was, just up Jeremy's point, it was clearly a much more working class aspirational <laughs> thing. You know, you, you make the point later on in the book that there are professional pageant people, which strikes me as horrifying, um, <laughs> to be candid. But, but you know, I had a much, in a weird way, sympathy is not the right word, but I had a much closer sense of the fact that, you know, this represented something very real to the working class people who were competing in it in Atlantic City in 1927. And it, it strikes me as something very different with all the layers uh, that have built up on it today. Well, not only that, so one thing I wanted to mention was similar to what Jeremy was saying. The question I was going to ask in the beginning is, there's like 33 pages in your bibliography. Like, where, where do you decide to stop with something like this? Because you're, you're really taking in all of the last hundred years of history. So that was the right. basic question. But um, there, the, those first 15 years are really, um, really interesting uh, storytelling, I guess, on, on your part. Uh, there was there was a lot of stuff to uh, sift out. I mean, people who have watched Boardwalk Empire, and you're familiar with oh, yeah, Nucky Thompson. He's based on <laughs> a real character. So there's organized crime involved yeah. in the telling of this story. The husband and white grifting <laughs> team. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> King Nut. Yeah, those are some of the funnest stories. The um, You know, going back to what it represents the, and, and having sympathy for the contestants, one of my misconceptions was that the contestants were all very socially conformist and predictable. And yeah. I ended up interviewing people who I sort of um, foregrounded in the book who weren't that, who were very unusual or outright rebellious. Uh, one was Yolande Vetbees. She was so interesting. Yeah, she yeah. was great. Uh, yeah, everybody loves her. She's just, she was talented, beautiful, smart, hilarious. Every press interview, she had some great line. And she was rebellious. She, When she was crowned, she the, the day after, uh, at her before her press conference, she announced that she would not wear a swimsuit during her, her rain year. And she had conveniently forgotten to sign the contract that would bind her, that was, you know, would require her to do that. 
And so she just had fun with it and did what she wanted and became very popular. Uh, and, and also Lenora Slaughter, who was the, the director she won under, loved her. Uh, like sort of tried to roll with some of her rebellion and resisted a little bit of it, but also saw she's a gold mine. This is great publicity for us. And then uh, later, Marilyn Vanderburg, uh, also in the 50s, was a winner who, who was your concept of the perfect, contained, controlled, refined Miss America. And she came from a money family, which is fairly unusual. And then she later revealed that up, up until she went to college, she had been sexually abused by her father. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, and became an activist for um, victims of incest. So I, if, if I had just read about her or watched the YouTube video, video of her winning, I would have thought very differently about her than I did after reading her memoir, which, you know, proved her to, you know, indicated she was a really um, principled, courageous, amazing woman who to this day in her 80s is still doing this work. We're speaking with the author Margot Mifflin. Her new book is called Looking for Miss America. A pageant's 100-year quest to define womanhood is out now from Counterpoint. We're going to take a short break right now to remember the folks that helped make this station possible. After the break, we're going to hear another uh, excerpt from Margot's book, and then we're going to return in conversation with her. You, of course, are listening to I-94 right here on WLPN Chicago. This summer on I-94... Joe Mino, Makita Brotman, Nancy DeCampo, J.P. Olson and Luke Walden, Tom Lynn, Atticus Lish, Paget Powell, Peter Cameron, Margot Mifflin, Chris Ware, and many, many more. Only on Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. In 1955, the pageant saw another historic first, the arrival of Burt Parks, the MC who became synonymous for viewers of a certain age, with Miss America for more than a quarter of a century. A former actor and radio TV host, Parks was sometimes called Mr. Miss America. He wasn't a celebrity flown in on a Saturday night, said Atlantic City historian Vicki Gold-Levy, also a former pageant judge, in PBS's Miss America. He was there all week getting to know them. They trusted him. He loved what he was doing, and he really was one of the defining factors that made television households love Miss America. Well, he usually loved it. His first year, when the number of women doing dramatic presentations hit a high in the wake of Meriwether's success with the J.M. Singe monologue, he tore backstage and exclaimed, No, no more. I can't stand any more Bobby Sox Bernhardts. Parks was smooth, accommodating, genuinely excited on stage as he crowned queen after queen, and reassuring to the most tentative and terrified contestants as they were blindsided by random questions he pulled from a fishbowl, such as, When you raise a family, give us your reasons for raising a large or small family. He inaugurated the pageant's signature song, There She Is, Miss America, which had been written in under an hour by composer Bernie Wayne, who also wrote Blue Velvet, a man who never attended a beauty contest. Park sang it with a swoony, slightly tragic glissando, launching the winners down the runway with his serenade. 
As historian Cassie Pice has observed, it evoked a wedding or a debutante ball with Parks, then 40, giving away the bride. There she is, Miss America. There she is, your ideal. The dream of a million girls who are more than pretty can come true in Atlantic City, for she may turn out to be the queen of femininity. There she is, Miss America. There she is, your ideal. With so many beauties, she'll take the town by storm. With her all-American face and form, there she is, walking on air she is. Fairest of the fair she is. There she is, Miss America. For all Slaughter's protestations that the pageant wasn't just about beauty, to prove it, she had even tactlessly remarked that Miss America 1952 was not the prettiest contestant. The song ballyhooed nothing but. There was the phrase, your ideal. Whose ideal? In her memoir, Negroland, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Margaret Jefferson recalls coming home with her sister after a rapturous night watching the pageant at her grandmother's house in Chicago in the 1950s. Mama, you could be Miss America, they exclaim, and Jefferson writes, their mother's laugh deflects them, as does her grandmother's smile. These children know so little about the world. The two of them know exactly who is beautiful, who is pretty, and who is attractive by the national beauty standard. Mother considers herself attractive. She and Grandma believe that most Negro women are considered, at best, attractive. This double standard had consequences beyond beauty contests. After the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision banning separate schools for blacks and whites, similar inequities were challenged in housing, on public transportation, famously by Rosa Parks in 1955, and in the workplace, where in some female-specific jobs, race-based discrimination was entangled with looks-based bias. In 1956, for example, when a black woman named Dorothy Franklin was rejected after applying to be a stewardess with TWA, she filed a lawsuit against the airline which claimed it was her appearance, not her race, that cost her the job. These men regard beauty as a fact upon which all reasonable men could agree, Maxine Leeds Craig writes in Ain't I a Beauty Queen? They discuss race as if it had nothing to do with appearance and beauty, as if beauty had never been racialized. Ever since Thelma Porter was named Miss Subways in New York City in 1948, black women had pressured white beauty contests to integrate, often with the support of the NAACP. They occasionally succeeded. Sometimes, however, the racism followed the victory. When Dortha Martin Berry made national news as the first black Miss State University of Iowa in 1955, the university refused to acknowledge her win and canceled events normally scheduled for the campus queen. Though African-American pageants initially prized a light-skinned ideal, they evolved to include a broader range of black beauty. Even so, segregated contests came to seem marginalizing, as Craig notes, like mere imitations. Why shouldn't black women assume center stage, especially when Miss America delivered the biggest jackpot? Why couldn't they represent America? Welcome back once again to another edition of I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good evening. Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And you just heard an excerpt from Looking for Miss America, a pageant's 100-year quest to define womanhood. It's a new book out from Margot Mifflin, and we've been in conversation with Margot uh, for over the past half hour. Uh, Margot, we only have a little bit of time left in the broadcast because, uh, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of time on the air. But one of the things I did want to bring up, because I thought it was very odd, 
there were so many notable names around Miss America, not necessarily people who won. You already mentioned Cloris Leachman here from Chicago, of course. Anita Bryant was another, a, a notorious anti-gay campaigner. One of the things, however, that, that struck me as a kind of a, a weird side turn that the Miss America pageant seemed to take was their embrace of Christian evangelicalism uh, in the <laughs> 60s and 70s. Um, and can, up to 1987, 85% of the participants from Mississippi said they were ordained by God. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember that specifically. Oh, thank you. That's you. insane. I, I had forgotten that fact, so yeah. I appreciate you throwing it up here. Can, can Sorry, Jamie. No, no, no. Can you? That's that's exactly where we're going for. Can you talk about that? Because that seemed to be a really, again, another strange example of the Miss America pageant echoing certain things in American culture that uh, really remain kind of at the center of a lot of the, the push and pull that we have in our, in our politics these days. Yeah, to this day, only two Miss Americas have not been Christian. We're coming up on the 100th year, the, we're into the 100th anniversary of Miss America, and uh, that's the problem. The diversity is not really where it should be. Since Vanessa Williams, there have been a lot of black winners. There's never been a Muslim. Um, there's never been a winner of Hispanic heritage. And so if we're, if, if Miss America is presenting itself as representing America, it does not. It, the diversity is not there. Well, uh, while gender, we were, oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, sorry, in, in terms of gender um, identity as well, it is very binary. Most, a vast majority of the winners are heterosexual. And sort of gender expression outside of that binary is not rewarded. So that's another problem that's, that also makes it uh, out of step with our current day. Well, I, I was thinking while we were talking, I, I hadn't thought of it before, but I feel like there are individuals, one in particular in this book, where who, who are so large, uh, who, who embody so much and do so much, uh, so often contradictory, that they, they represent the, the larger culture. Lenora Slaughter being, being one of them. Um, I mean, there's an argument to be made that there is no Miss America pageant without her. She, she did the groundwork for a lot of the financing from the major companies that donated to the pageant. Um, mm -hmm. She was with it for over 30 years. She made it more presentable as well right i mean she she made it yeah. viable she made it she made it uh yeah she made it operate at a, at profit you know the after the first couple of years they weren't sure if the thing could could uh take in the dollars they wanted it to to make it worth running the show um it was yes. of course she came on later but um and you know uh, later in the book uh, not not anywhere close to as, uh, as much influence as slaughter but gretchen carlson can you can you talk about uh Slaughter and 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 what interested you about her and uh, some of the characters that are closer to present day who might embody those contradictions and conflicts? Yeah, well, she herself represented uh, a sort of mid-century notion, even though she came aboard in the 30s, of American womanhood. And then by the late 60s, when she was retiring, she was holding on to these um, standards of, of womanhood. I have to add actually, um, most of what she instituted remains today, including that winners must be single and not have children. And so that raises an issue with the scholarships because uh, you know, as a public university professor, I'm acutely aware of the fact that the women who most need scholarships are young mothers demographically. Um, 
women who go to college later tend to have you know higher income and could pay for it. So Slaughter instituted these things, and then in the late '60s. Uh, clung to them, including the, the, you could imagine in the late 60s, insisting that nobody wear mini skirts uh, and insisting on fashion that the contestants couldn't even find in a store, you know, these, these long skirts and proper shoes. And so by the time she left in the late 60s, uh, it would, I think the institution and the contestants realized it was time for a change. And so it got, it accelerated a little bit and, and, uh, rewarded more outspoken independent women uh, in the 70s before second wave feminism kind of came in and and uh, dealt it a blow. It's interesting because the pageant today in your telling seems somewhat diminished despite the fact that it has such a long history, despite the fact that people obviously cared about it enough to try to reboot it and save it for the modern era. It suffered, obviously, from having a competitor uh, that's connected with a notorious ex-president as well. People, you mentioned yeah. that people get the two confused, and they're they're not related. I have to say, I, I got it confused, and when I read when I read the book, I, I always assumed that Trump was part of. Yes, same same yeah. before yeah. I read it. Yeah. yeah, can you tell us, Margot? Does the pageant have a future? Because it, it One of the things that struck me in the book was that it seemed to be that you'd written the history of something that may not even exist in three years. You may have closed the book on this. Can, can you address that a little bit? I can't predict what will happen, but it does seem unlikely that it will continue as it is for long. Uh, again, the, the, the sort of community aspect of it, the networking, the sisterhood of the women who've won and the state winners who get some pretty good money. The, the scholarships have stalled out for Miss America for decades at uh, $50,000 or the, uh, the reward money, the award money. But, uh, you know, state winners, some make more than that when they win. So there are a few who don't even really care if they win Miss America because they can <clears throat> stay local, continue in college and get money. Uh, so I think it, I mean, I, I shouldn't theorize what it could do because I don't know what it could do to survive. But I, the one thing it can't do is claim to represent America as it exists today because it doesn't. And it's interesting that so much of this started out, you know, at the turn of last century when many of the questions that we're asking about our own politics are very similar to that, you know, a new Gilded Age maybe on edge for us. And we've had a very difficult and contentious political season over the last decade as well. I think it's an interesting uh, thing to look at. We've, of course, been speaking with Margot Mifflin. Her new book is Looking for Miss America, Pageant's 100-Year Quest to Define Womanhood. Margot, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I am a big fan of your book, The Secret History of Women in Tattoo, which is one of the reasons I actually wanted to read this. Anybody who is an enthusiast of tattoos, and especially women in tattooing, should check out uh, Ms. Mifflin's book. Uh, Margo, before we let you go, I know you're a busy professor at CUNY. Could you tell us uh, what's up next for you? I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I went from, uh, you know, promoting this book to preparing for teaching in the Zoom COVID crazy phase of life yeah. that we're all in. Yeah. 
I'm not sure what's next. Well, whatever it is, I'm sure we're going to be yeah, looking, looking forward, forward to, to it. it. So we've been speaking today with Margo Mifflin. Her new book, again, is called Looking for Miss America, a pageant's 100-year quest to define womanhood. It is out now from Counterpoint. As I've mentioned, it is available at any good library and probably a good bookstore, too. We always give the authors the last word here on, 94, on I-94. Excuse me. So we're going to close with another excerpt from Margo's book, and we will see you all next week. Margo, thank you thank so you much so for joining us tonight. We really appreciate thank- it. Thank you for having me. It was great fun. Miss America glided seamlessly, even gloriously, into the modern era, or at least the 21st century. The show was practiced and professional, and the contestants looked like real women, not the synthetic creation of years past. Sporting jumpsuits or jeans with loosely styled hair, clustered in groups of five and six, they announced in unison that they were smart, confident, strong, talented, accomplished, principled, In the parade of states, they wore cocktail dresses and state sashes bearing no miss. Many eliminated the miss in their introductions as well. I am Kate Bouchard, Kentucky. A women's study major from the University of Michigan threw down the political gauntlet. From the state with 84% of the U.S. fresh water but none for its residents to drink, I am Miss Michigan, Emily Sioma, she said, sending Twitter a buzz about her boldness. The talent was the usual, ballet, opera, classical piano, Licht appeared twice, and, not again, ventriloquism. But a feel-good poem performed by Miss Colorado was so ingenuously offbeat that I found myself clapping enthusiastically until I sensed a deafening silence around me. Clearly, this was not the stuff of Miss America talent. In fact, it had evidently just scuttled Colorado's candidacy for this job. When I later recalled that she was a Harvard graduate heading for a PhD in neuroscience, I wondered if a mini TED-style talk on her chosen field wouldn't have shown her skills to better effect, though that too would likely have tanked in this resolutely frothy scholarship competition. One hopeful was even asked in her interview how 2.0 contestants should perform when historically only stage talents have excelled. She encouraged women to think outside the box. Well, maybe another year. A red carpet section allowed the top 10 finalists to model whatever formal wear they wanted, most opted for gowns, as they identified their platforms, campus sexual assault, environmental awareness, let's talk trash, and food insecurity among them. Before runners-up were announced in the countdown to the crowning, Kara Mund materialized wearing a shimmering emerald gown with a full skirt, smiling and waving over her pre-recorded valediction, having been forbidden from speaking live. It was part of old-school bromides. How can I say farewell when I know this is just the beginning? Part 2.0 Power Talk. As soon as I walk off this stage tonight, I'm going to law school to become the first female governor of North Dakota. She got a standing ovation. Miss America truly reflected American racial diversity that year. Of the five finalists, four were women of color, and the fourth runner-up, Gabriela Taveras, was Afro-Latina. Taveras, who came close to making history, later told me she hadn't known that a Latina of color had never won. Her story is remarkable. The first black Miss Massachusetts, she is of Dominican, Haitian, and Chinese descent. She's the daughter of a single mom. When she was one year old, her father was incarcerated, then deported. She worked four jobs starting at age 15 to raise money to pay for a private college prep high school, where she was the only girl in the boys' wrestling team. She was sexually abused as a small child, and her take on the swimsuit competition is like no other. She supports it partly because she was abused. I love swimsuit because it allowed me to say, you can see my body on my own terms, she explains. 
She was raised to dress modestly, long shorts, high collars, from early childhood, which made her uneasy in her body. Competing in pageants helped her feel more comfortable, able to say, my legs are not sexual objects, nor are my shoulders, nor is my belly, nor is me in a swimsuit. The winner, Nia Franklin, New York, enchanted the judges with her booming operatic voice and the kind of low-key poise that comes from confidence, not pageant coaching. She threw her hands up to thank God, then serenely walked back and forth across the stage, which nettled traditionalists who wanted to see their queen sashay down the runway to There She Is, which had also been retired. They wanted pageantry, but this was no longer a pageant. Miss America 2.0 was the best it could be, given the short history of its rebranding and its intrinsic constraints. What do you do with the name Miss America when you're pushing hopefuls toward a professional world without misses, and when Ms. America is an established pageant for women over 25? Once you remove the crown, which makes these driven women look like little girls playing dress-up, you have an honor ceremony fused to a talent show, which is why some people just wanted to see it die. Many members of the MAO Facebook fan forum like the greater emphasis on academics but wish fewer traditions had been yanked. Some found it dull and unglamorous. Tavares told me most of the contestants wanted to keep the swimsuit, but Franklin supported its removal. I'm more than just that, she said at a press conference afterward, and all these women on stage are more than just that. The pageant survived its overhaul, just barely. The ratings hit an historic low, and the media coverage was weary and perfunctory. Writing in The Atlantic, Megan Garber confessed to being both moved and confused by it, noting the numerous references to empowerment and not a single mention of feminism. The same was true of the revamped website, whose front page quoted Moon saying, Miss America does not focus on fitting into glass slippers. She's determined to shatter glass ceilings. Commenters responded to Washington Post coverage with terse annoyance. Even without the meat, it's still a meat market, one wrote. Another asked incredulously, is this still on television? Others, confusing it with Miss USA, made Donald Trump cracks. While Miss America was advancing in half-steps, the culture was taking giant leaps. That fall, a historic number of women ran and won in the 2008 midterm elections, including 31 first-time members of the House of Representatives. These were the achievers ambitious young women were celebrating as role models. As Christina Cotarucci wrote in Slate, no matter how hard I try, I can't quite grasp what's supposed to make sense about the act of publicly ranking a group of 51 women against one another based on a set of arbitrary, disparate skills. There's already a name for a competition where women compete against one another to prove their passion, ambition, intelligence, talent, and love for America. It's called an election. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Margot Mifflin, author of Looking for Miss America, a pageant's 100-year quest to define womanhood, out now from Counterpoint. This episode originally aired on September 2nd, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.